Conversation is alive and well right here on On Mike with Jordan Rich. Hello there. Welcome. They say that culture is downwind of politics, or some say it's the other way around. For a really in-depth dose of politics, history, civics, and more, you've got to turn to a guy by the name of Richard Rubino. I certainly do. Rich is a political junkie, and he knows his stuff. He's written so many books, including the political Bible of humorous quotations from American politics, another one called Make Every Vote Equal. What a novel idea. He wrote the political Bible of little-known facts in American politics and the Great American Political Trivia Challenge, political trivia on steroids, to name but a few. Rich is an expert communicator, and his passion for all things politics is contagious. So let's have ourselves a civil conversation about civics and a whole lot more as we invite Rich Rubino to join us on mic. Well, first of all, it's so much fun to see you, Rich. We've talked on the phone many times, and I'm looking at a beautiful backdrop. It looks like the Library of Congress behind <laughs> you. That's real, though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Those <laughs> books actually, those books actually have ink marks. Ah, dog-eared in some cases with ink marks. <laughs> well, well you- it's funny. I do have the um, – I, I always read every year the Almanac of American Politics – and sometimes that does get very uh, dog-eared, but I'm probably the only person that reads it for pleasure as opposed to just re- using it as a resource. So. Well, I'm glad you said that because that opens up the, the can of questions I have, which is really all about you and mm-hmm. your amazing memory, but your interest. Where does this interest on yeah. everything politics begin with Rich Rubino? Well, it's almost congenital. I rem- well, I mean, literally, I remember being a kid and getting the presidential figurines and kind of lining them up and being interested and, in, you know, having kind of a fixation with Benjamin Harrison, particularly Rutherford B. Hayes, Grover Cleveland, the Gilded Age presidents. And then when I was about eight years old, uh, the uh, cable came to my municipality. And for some reason, I discovered C-SPAN and C-SPAN 2 at the time. And I just became, it just came as perpetual interest. I'd want to come home and I'd want to watch congressional hearings. I would want to watch the special orders speeches at night when essentially people think that, a lot of people that is, think that there's somebody speaking to a house chamber, but really it's just a colloquy between two or three members. I got fascinated by that. So I think that's what kind Mm. of precipitated it. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I came from a political family or anything because I didn't. I think I just kind of mm-hmm. discovered it, and I just, for some reason, just kind of, it was just kind of this gravitational pull toward it. I've got to ask you this follow-up question. You mentioned the presidents and the little figurines. Yes. I remember, now, I don't know if we're talking about the same set of figurines, but I had up through Johnson, all the presidents, yes. they were, yes. right? They were about yep. uh, three or four inches high, and, yep, they, they was, and they were on a, like a white pedestal, right? Some kind of a yep, pedestal. That- Yep, that's exactly. And they had their and they would have their name, their last name. They would see like their last name. And I think Johnson, you're right. That was the um, I think that was the last one that they made at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, and I and I, I remember having a couple of duplicates. I still remember having a big box of them. And um, I remember just going through them and getting some fascination with it. And then I bought a few presidential books right around that age. And I remember kind of liking to learn about the presidents, about their time and for some reason, it's just, you know, I, I don't know why it stuck with me, but I just had that kind of perpetual, in, perpetual interest. Well, he, here we are together again, and we're talking about, a sh- I didn't know this about you and your, your collection, but we had the same one. I, yes. I, I've often thought, and I'd like your take on this, that if you really want to understand American history in terms of when and why things happen, just know who the presidents were during these periods. Uh, it's very helpful to know who was in office. For instance, I mean, everybody knows about, well, I would hope 
everybody knows Lincoln was in office at a certain point in time. But before Lincoln, those two presidents, uh, you know, Fillmore and Buchanan really mattered. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? And you had Franklin Pierce in there as well. Um, certainly in terms of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and kind of the way that they tried to avert the Civil War and, you know, certainly were not able to do that. But you're right. But it's also interesting, though, and I think when I was little, my fixation was probably too much on the presidents. Perhaps that was why it was probably better that C-SPAN came because, I mean, a lot of people think that the president is kind of this, you know, has plenipotentiary powers like a dictator or, you know, some totalitarian regime. But you got to remember in the United States, the president is only the head of one of three co-equal branches of government at the federal level. And then beyond that, you have state level, you have municipal level. So it's called layer cake federalism. So I think to know what's going on, you also sometimes have to know what's going on in the United States Congress, because sometimes when presidents are not effective, it's because they cannot get their legislation through um, the United States Congress, or they have a United States Congress that's perhaps of another party or another ideological wing of their own party. So sometimes that can be, and that can get interesting as well, because Congress, you know, they obviously, I think they're, you think they can be more, sometimes more interested in the presidents, and I think I realized that at the time, because I mean, it's very hard for a constituent to directly contact their president, but they want to they want to go to a town hall meeting for their congressman or even their United States senator, and you know they can actually directly talk to that person sometimes. So sometimes they, sometimes the senators and even the congress people are more are closer to the to their actual constituents, and sometimes you know people will say, why does this guy believe this? Why does this guy believe this? Why does this congressman believe that? But you got to sometimes when you're talking about a congressman specifically, you have to look at who their constituents are. And very rarely do you have a congressman who's out of line with their constituents, because if that's the case, first of all, they risk the possibility if they come up from a very conservative district or a very liberal district and they're seen as independent, they risk the possibility of losing in a primary. And on the other side of that, if they're seen as being too far left or too far right in what could potentially be a swing or a showdown district, then you have the possibility that they could lose in a general election. So sometimes the Congress people are actually more interesting. And then you have the judiciary which can be fascinating because if you go back in time, people have that, well, if you go back to Marbury versus Madison in 1803, it basically declared that the that the United States um, Supreme Court has the power to declare whether something is constitutional or not constitutional. But I always find it fascinating because in the actual United States Constitution, they don't actually have that power. So they've basically given themselves a the power to declare what's constitutional and unconstitutional, but theoretically, um, they don't actually have that power. So there's so many kind of intricacies in the Constitution mm. and in the American political system, I think. What do you think of this statement? And it's originating here that the problem with incivility in America is the fact that people don't understand what civics are and how they work. I mean, if you really focus on the, the, the way the Constitution is laid out and it's laid out so beautifully at 300 years ago or so, if you really concentrate on just the basics, you're going to understand that certain things cannot happen. You shouldn't be irate because they haven't happened because they are not allowed to happen. Just ex explore that theory with me that we need to teach and understand civics much more. Oh, I, I categorically agree. And certainly the president, um, you know, so many people think that the way the country is going, the way the economy is going, for example, immediately say, well, it's the president's fault. If the economy's, if the, if you're, if the jobs, if you know, you're creating 20 million new jobs, that's because of the president. If you're, if you have a de net deficit of jobs, or if you're certainly under the growth rate that you would like, you say, well, that's because of the president. If it's inflation, it's the deficit, the debt. But there are so many other factors, both world factors as well as certainly the role of the United States Congress plays. But in terms of civics, also, what I find fascinating is when people explain the Constitution. 
people have, I think, what I think is a misapprehension about what the Constitution actually does and what its role is. I hear all the time people saying, well, the Constitution was effectuated or created because the founders wanted to limit government. But if you actually go back to 1787 and the Constitutional Convention, the people who actually wanted to limit government would not have been for the Constitution. They would have been for the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, which was the precursor to the Constitution, which was the Constitution that the United States already had going back to 1783. And if you want limited government, that really limits government. All 13 colonies, for example, have to agree to raise taxes, mm. to go to war. The central government is extremely small. So what happened in 1787, the reason for the Constitutional Convention that hot summer in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is there were a lot of about 56 members who thought that the Articles of Confederation or Petra Union was feckless. It was ineffectual. It did not do enough in terms of having in terms of giving power to the central government or the federal government. So you had federalists, folks like Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Madison, who wanted a more expansive federal government. And they were the ones that wrote the Constitution. Now, you had anti-federalists, and the anti-federalists, if you actually go back and you read the anti-federalist papers, which were against the ratification of the Constitution, they thought that essentially all you really needed to do was amend the existing articles and not create a completely new, different document. But I'll tell you, if you click the Constitution here, put the Articles of Confederation or Petra Union here, you will see that the Constitution does a lot to actually expand the size of government versus the original yeah. document. Now, what they did do in order to propitiate or placate some of the anti-federalists and get their support at the Constitutional Convention is they emplaced a Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So those 10 amendments so that which would actually which would say that the government, OK, government has these powers and they're enumerated. We want the people who originally supported the articles to come with us and support that. So there were certainly measures to get those people to support it. But at the time, I think the true libertarians or the true conservatives would have supported the articles, I think it would have probably been the more moderates and the more liberals who probably would have actually supported the United States Constitution. So it's an interesting, um, it's a, it's a just an interesting transmogrification. I think. There's so much going on in that particular period of, say, 15 or 20 years. I mean, you've got mm -hmm. that whole thing, the Articles of Confederation, the Federalist Papers, but you mm -hmm. also have the first president who, for all intents and purposes, if it was the wrong person, it might have been someone who had more thoughts on being regal and king-like. I mean, we everything had to work just right. It had to be George Washington who decided, you know, two terms, I'm out of here. And I, I, he just didn't assume the, the mantle of kingman at the time, it seems anyway. Well, it's interesting because they go back to the Articles of Confederation again. They actually had an office called the Office of President Assembled of Congress assembled rather, and there was an executive office. It was a very weak executive office, but there was just some people and certainly his descendants believe that John Hansen, because he was the first president under the articles, should be considered the first president. At the time, they were members of the Continental Congress. They would serve one-year terms. And part of what he did is he was actually the first person to declare the Department of Treasury. He had the presidential seal. So they actually did have some authority and there was a president one year. But getting back to George Washington, that's kind of, I guess, conventional thinking is that he was the first president. And certainly it's interesting because George, now, first of all, let's go back in time here. America's always been divided. You can go back to the Mayflower oh, Compact, yeah. we were divided. And then you go back to the people who wanted the, go back to the revolution. The people that were about third of the country who were patriots toward the crown, who thought we should continue to live under the British crown. You had about a third of the country that was just insouciant, just blasé, just didn't care one way or the other, just wanted to live their lives. Then you had a third of the country who were revolutionaries, 
who wanted to essentially declare independence. Then you had the Articles people, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. But George Washington was somebody who supported what James Madison had written in Federalist 10, which was essentially that we should try to do all we possibly could to preclude factions in the country. So he was not a member of a political party, never was. But during his term, it was members of his administration that kind of created the political party system. George Washington was seen as somebody who was sympathetic toward the Federalists, toward the toward a more expansive federal government. He did a lot to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, um, for example. Um, so he was seen as somebody more, more sympathetic to a large federal government, but he never declared a political party. But during his administration, John Adams, the vice president and secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, bitter, bitter nemesis, bitter rivals, both had their own newspapers and their newspapers basic job was to go after it goes to go after each other. And essentially what you had by the end of Washington's term, even though he you know, talked about the baleful intra, intra influence of political parties, talk about that in his um, farewell address. But you had he actually didn't talk about it, it was actually just printed. But you had John Adams and the Federalist Papers, which would have been the equivalent, I guess, of the Federalists. And then you had Thomas Jefferson, who wanted a small agrarian republic at the time, a little bit different than kind of contemporaneous conservatism, because he also wanted a very, very small military. But you essentially had Jefferson and Jefferson, what became the Democratic Republican Party. And you had John Adams in what became the Federalist Party. And interesting, in our system, you've always had two major parties, which is different than a lot of countries, because a lot of countries, you have seven or eight political parties. So and essentially, in the American system, in order for a political party to be successful, they have to be a catch-all party, if you will, meaning that they have to be able to, on the Republican side, they have to be able to retract pilts in the center left, in the center right, in the center, and then keep the people on the right in their on in their corner. On the left, you have to have essentially the liberals, the center-left people, and then you go toward the center. And it's always been folks on the, on the left, for example, there's always been the Green Party influence, there's been a Socialist Workers Party influence, but they've never really become major parties. And it's just interesting if he did talk to George Washington today and talked about how we always how divided we have essentially been based on political parties, he would probably say that he disdained it. But I think he certainly realized mm. the reality that in just our system, like any other system, you're always going to have those type of divisions. Well, you're a historian. Thank you for the civics lesson for right now. You've given me a great lesson and a reminder. But um, I think that's what's missing today is that sense of of history. The the difference today. Oh, yeah. The difference today with political figures is everything they say is recorded instantly and available. I was watching a, a piece about uh, one of the party heads talking about the filibuster, and you know, ten, oh, yeah. ten years ago, I think it was Chuck Schumer, he called it the, the 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 end of democracy if we do away with the filibuster or whatever, or add the filibuster. I don't know; it doesn't matter. He's the complete opposite <laughs> of today, and that goes for Republicans and Democrats all the time. Um, so. How important is it, though, for the average voter, me, you, or anyone out there, to really have a grasp of the basic history so that we we know, okay, it's political. We know that that's going to be the spin now, even though it was <laughs> completely opposite then. W- why is this so important to, to the voters to know? Well, yeah, this that's absolutely true. You go back to 2004, you know, Bob Byrd was one of the people from West Virginia who came to Boston when they had the Democratic Convention that year. And was someone who talked about how important the filibuster was. And now with the Democratic Party, with the exception of one of his successors, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and perhaps John Tester is some is a party that has become opposed mostly to the action of the filibuster. But you're right. It is interesting to kind of and it is certainly 
I think everyone needs an historical grasp because so many people say it's so divided. Why is it so divided? But they don't have the knowledge about how divided the country has actually been. Now, that being said, it does have vicissitudes and it ebbs and it flows. And there are certainly times when it's less divided. Um, I think in the last century, for example, you had, I think basically, I think you had the 1920s, the 1950s, and the 1990s were, were probably the most unified times. I think in the 1920s, certainly the economy was rolling, eventually you had the Great Depression, but when Coolidge was president, um, there, toward the, 19, the end of the 1920s, there was not as much um, vituperation amongst the two parties. In the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower was president. He was very popular. He worked with Lyndon Johnson, who was Senate Majority Leader. He worked with Sam Rayburn, who was Speaker of the House. They had kind of a trifecta. Now, they had certainly differences, to be sure. In the 1960 election, John F. Kennedy, for example, excoriated Eisenhower for the missile gap, which landed up not being true. But he said that the Russians had more missiles than the United States. The United States need to spend more on defense. Then you also had the 1990s. Now, Bill Clinton was a very polarizing figure, certainly, both to people on the left who were opposed to his to him for welfare reform and NAFTA and deficit reduction, but also to folks on the right, um, and certainly folks on the right more because I think they did not like the idea of there being a baby boomer and certainly is, they didn't like somebody who would oppose the Vietnam War. But if you look at the issues that we were facing from about nine to after the, after the, the first two years were kind of divisive, but go from 1995 to 2001, what was a country essentially debating? What was the 1996 election about? Bill Clinton campaigned that year on curfews on school uniforms. Hmm. Um, it was very, very minor, minor issues. And then if you look at Bob Dole was campaigning about, for example, the federal government should be doing more about drug use. He was talking about let's, you know, that he was talking about just don't do it, his slogan that he would use, tobacco regulations. Um, Bill Clinton wanted to um to want the FDA to declare tobacco a drug. And then toward the end of his term, um, the 1998, 1999, the issues were essentially, what do we do with the surplus? Do we give it as a tax cut? Do we give it to, 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 um, to make Social Security solvent? What is it that we do with the surplus? These were actual issues. And you had a lot, and even though I think Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich certainly had a very, a very contentious relationship, it was Bill Clinton, Trent Lott, and Newt Gingrich who worked in the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. And that was probably the last time, I think, that was probably the last kind of innocent year. That was right before mm. the Monica Lewinsky scandal and before Newt, you know, Newt Gingrich had his own issues, certainly. But I thought that, I think that was probably the last kind of innocent year when the, everyone was, when Clinton was relatively popular and people just generally liked the direction uh, and the trajectory of the nation. I promise we're going to talk about your latest project, the Great American Political Trivia Challenge. We're going to get to that, and that's fun, and we'll have a few sample questions from you. But uh, since you're also a broadcast journalism major with a master's from Emerson. Let's talk about where we are in the media world in 2022 as we record this. I mean, it has gotten, it's such a zoo to begin with, but it's gotten crazier and crazier. And a lot of it has to do with the influx of social media and everyone's an editor and everyone's a producer. But historically, I mean, you can look back at the muckraking of the 1800s and mm -hmm. painting Abraham Lincoln as an ape in the newspaper and some horrific mm -hmm. stuff. And, and even though it's then and now and there's technology differences, I mean, things are bad now, but they've often been this bad. I'm not talking about journalistic credence and journalistic ethics overall, but in terms of the stuff that's printed and the stuff that's broadcast, what's different oh, about today, if anything? Well, it's, I mean, back in that time and even going back to the founding of the country, the, the journalists and the reporters did not actually try or make any semblance that they're supposed to be neutral. They knew that there was going to be 
their job was going to be either support the Democratic Republican Party or support the Federalist Party and fustigate or excoriate the other party. I mean, now what's different is at least the mainstream news media at least presents themselves as, I'm not talking about the opinion part, I'm not talking about the editorial pages, but the front pages present themselves as somebody who's just simply trying to be a neutral, uncolored arbiter of the news, who's trying to just simply present the news. Now, obviously, nobody is completely impartial. Every thinking being has some sort of semblance of a partiality towards something. Just the fact what you emphasize in a story shows that you have some sort of an some sort of a bias because why are you emphasizing point A rather than emphasizing point B, E, point C, point Q, whatever else? But what you do have is, and I think that you have an echo chamber effect. And that's what social media is doing. Not only social media, but I think talk radio, I think the bifurcation of the news media, and part of it is marketing too, but you know, news stations try to market toward people who agree with them ideologically. I mean, it's just simply, you know, in order for a business, for, in order for there to be a business, for their business model, their business model is essentially, we want to appeal to this, we want to appeal to that. And it's very rare, I think, today, when you find somebody that re watches the news with a completely or is 99% open mind and just wants to f get the information. What people want to do now is they want to get an information from a source that they agree with. Mm. So then they can talk to other people who agree with them and they can say, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. And then they can argue with people. If they do talk to people on the other side, they can argue with people on the other side and go after the source that that person is getting their information from. And usually what you have in terms of all, all information, there's kind of, there's usually there's the truth is usually somewhere in the middle, but there's the left will take it out. We'll take it. We'll take the truth. We'll take the truth and they'll be hyperbolic about something. The right will do the same. And, you know, any sort of an ideology or any personality will try to take what's, you know, we'll try to take something that's technically true. You know, very rarely do people actually lie. It's like when you see a political advertisement and says, you know, this person just being exaggerated, but say this person supported a tax cut for bank robbers or this person wanted to <laughs> wanted to raise tax. we just wanted to so. That, may, that probably is true if you have a tax cut that's going to millions of people. My guess is a few bank robbers got right, the tax cut, right, right. but it's probably not the whole story. Rich, uh, one of the sad thoughts is that we don't attract statesmen. I'll use the, the old term statesmen, meaning men mm -hmm. and women, because of the nature of the introspection and, and the media spotlight and all that digging that's being done by those who want to destroy um, is is that the way you see it? That it's very difficult for people. First of all, it's so costly to get into the the federal realm, but it's so difficult for people to to put their lives on the line and risk so much in terms of reputation in in going into government and doing public service. It 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 pains me. What does it feel like to you? Oh no, that's absolutely true. I think statesmen are usually the are usually politicians at the end of their term who do not have re who do not who are not worried about reelection or moving up. Um, who essentially are at the very end and they're going to end their career. So then all of a sudden they can kind of be a statesman or somebody who's no longer in office. You know, part of it is, I think, the way the political process works in order to be a statesman, um, you have to be you have to be elected in order to be elected. You have to tell your constituents that you're either going to do this for them or that you agree with them on something. Now, once in a while, you'll have somebody who's just completely out of sync with their constituents who still gets reelected. Dale Bumpers, for example, mm. Dale Bumpers, he was a governor of Arkansas from 1971 to 75. Then he was United States senator from 75 to 1999. He was one of the most liberal members of the United States Senate, yet he represented Arkansas. And he actually called himself a liberal 
and he was extremely popular. He would get reelected time and time again, in part, even though many of his votes went against what I think his constituents would have actually wanted, in part because he had kind of a folksy attitude, in part because he had a certain charisma to him, but also because he essentially told people that he wasn't necessarily going to just be there and going to um, and going to be sort of a tribune to the constituents, if you will. You know, this is interesting, though. I guess this is really the argument of do you want direct democracy or do you want a constitutional republic? If you had direct democracy, all a congressman or a senator would do. Now, a true direct democracy, the people are making the decisions. You have committees, but go one step beyond that. If you want the congressman to essentially take a poll and say, this is how I'm going to vote, this is how I'm going to vote, or do you want that congressperson to essentially provide leadership, in which case they say, I'm going to vote this way, even though 78% of my constituents want me to do something else. Chances are, if, a, if there is a congressman who does that, chances are they're probably not going to get reelected. But obviously, there are always a couple of exceptions. <laughs> Let's get to the uh, the book, uh, the latest one, and it is a magnum opus, and it's called The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, Political Trivia on Steroids. And I think if people are listening to this interview, they understand uh, the author can certainly sling it and then bring it. Um, I wanted to mention President Hansen again because that's one of the great – all-time trivia questions, that, a trick question, right, that you, you get people on. Who was the first, quote, quote, yes. president? But uh, tell, tell us about the categories, because they're not just about presidents and congressmen. There's some great categories in the book. No, that was I wanted to make sure, first of all, this is not simply a presidential trivia book. There are plenty of those out there. I want to make this so it's as, you know, as all-encompassing as possible. So we have presidents, then I have a section on presidential quotations, presidential campaigns, then I have the House, House campaigns, House quotations members, then the speakers of the House, senators, uh, the judiciary, then states, governors, then quotes by governors, and then bloopers, dirty tricks, one of my personal favorites, and celebrities commenting about politics, which I always find amusing. So I try to be as all-encompassing as possible because, trust me, I've seen many presidential trivia books out there. There are plenty of them, and usually they're just question and answer. So I also try to yeah. make the answers when possible as entertaining, educative, and funny as I possibly can. Well, I think, I think people hear trivia and they think, oh, that's not very important. Yes. But I, I learn every time I pick up the book, and it's one of those books that you'll just keep around and read and flip through and enjoy. Every time I pick it up, I learn something new. And as I said earlier to you, Rich, knowing sort of when things were happening, when a particular president was in office or when a particular war was fought is very helpful so I, I just want to ask you to uh, uh, provide us with a few of your favorite questions from the book just to give folks a sense as to where your mind is going. Well, you mentioned bloopers and you mentioned scandals. What comes to mind? Yeah, bloopers. Obviously, you got to love bloopers. Um, Michelle Bachman. Remember Michelle Bachman? Oh, yes. From, sure do. From Minnesota, yeah. ran for president. Well, she did a couple of things. First of all, she was actually, even though she represented Minnesota, she was actually born in Waterloo, Iowa. So obviously... You go, you're running for you're running for president. You're going to Iowa and you want to say this is my hometown. So she announced her candidacy in Waterloo, Iowa. And of course, she represents. She says at the time, she says, I'm so proud, you know, something to the effect of to be here where John Wayne also lived. John Wayne actually lived in Iowa, but she didn't live in Waterloo, Iowa. But coincidentally, somebody else named John Wayne once lived in Waterloo, <laughs> Iowa. And that was John, the murderer, John Wayne Casey, John Wayne Casey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. OK, so is that a, a staff error that she just was or do, who? how do we know that it wasn't just? Uh, I'm assuming that was probably a staff error because and she did another one, too. This is why I'm kind of amalgamating. So she also went to Concord, New Hampshire. 
And she said, you, you should all be so proud to be here in Concord, New Hampshire, oh, no. the home of the shot heard around the world, Yeah, which yeah. of course was Concord, Massachusetts. But my guess is that was probably a, st- a staff era, but I just well, love that when that's that type of thing. It, it, we have a president now, and this is nothing to do with the political sphere. But I mean, some of the things that, that come out of his mouth are not English. I have no idea where, where he's going sometimes. And I, I really do... Uh, fear that, you know, age is catching up with him as it catches up with all of us. But uh, looking back at bloopers, would Gerald Ford's blooper about Eastern Europe be right at the top of anyone's list? Yes. So he was in, this was 1976, debate between himself and Jimmy Carter. He was coming back at one point in the summer of 76. He was down by 36, kind of 36 points to Jimmy Carter. He came back, made probably one of the greatest comebacks in American history, he later said that if Ronald Reagan, who would run against him in the primary from the right, campaigned more for him in places like Mississippi, he thinks that he potentially could have pulled out the biggest upset in history. But it's right. He basically, he was asked essentially a question in the debate, and he said something to the effect of, I don't think the polls think they're under, you know, the Iron Curtain, under the, under the, under, um, that don't believe they're, they're under, they're under Russia control, or they're, you know, talking about mm. Eastern Europe. And then he kind of was asked about it again, and then he kind of, he didn't backtrack, he kind of doubled down on it. And basically saying that, you know, that, that East, these Eastern European countries were not actually under control of the Soviet Union. Later, he did backtrack on it, but it was probably um, it was probably too late. He but was, he also, by the way, yeah. he was giving a speech and somebody put in, he was talking about the Democratic Congress. I say to you, this is nonsense. Someone in parentheses wrote with emphasis. I say to you, this is nonsense. With emphasis. Yeah, I think Biden's done it. I, I'm not sure if Trump did it, but I mean, part of it you, ha- you can excuse by the amount of material that any president or any big, big leader has to deal with. But those are funny moments as well as cringeworthy moments. What about scandals? What I mean, there's, there's Watergate, there's Teapot Dome, there's uh, any number of uh, the Lewinsky's. I mean, but what, what comes to mind when you think scandal? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, certainly those are certainly the major ones. Also, there were many administrations, many kind of scandals that didn't directly affect him, but certainly other the Grant administration, oh, yeah. Yeah. which is part of the reason why he's not remembered as a near great president, because so many people remember all the scandals, whereas he actually did a lot in terms of combating the Ku Klux Klan. He actually did a lot domestically that people have kind of forgotten about. Um, I think that some in terms of some of the other scandals, here's 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 one that I think is interesting is you go back to Harry Truman. Um, Truman's actually is remembered positively today, but when he was in 1952, he was extremely unpopular. He couldn't. He tried to run for re-election in New Hampshire. He lost to Estes Kefauver, so he declared he wasn't going to run. But Adelaide Stevenson, the governor of Illinois at the time, landed up mustering the nomination. And Republicans that year kept on going after him for three things: Korea, the fact that the Korean War was just, was stalemating, kept going on; communism, the fact that the Chinese had um, essentially take that that the communists had taken over uh, mainland China, and corruption. Because there was a lot of corruption in first, certainly the Treasury Department um, during his administration, and a lot of people at the time thought he would be remembered for as a president who certainly had many scandals. Um, then you certainly can go, you know, closer to closer to today. You can get there. There were a lot of kind of minor scandals. For example, um, Burt Lance, the um, uh, the, the budget director under the Carter administration, was one who got who certainly had gotten into some trouble. And then you also obviously you have Mike Gatsby in the Clinton administration, with who was agriculture secretary. You said certainly. Iran Contra. Um, you had the you had Iran Contra, and then you had George H. W. Bush pardoning some of his coefficients from the Iran Contra the day after Christmas in 1992. And then certainly, um, you certainly had Whitewater, which I think mm-hmm. you know certainly occupied much of the political space 
um, the first couple of years of the Clinton administration. So you've always kind of had um, scandals at the national level, and then you go to the local level. I mean, the one I think fascinating is look at Rob Blagojevich in Illinois. Oh, my gosh. Um, so Barack <laughs> Obama gets elected president, and Rob Blagojevich has the responsibility of choosing his successor in the United States Senate. And the feds have him on tape saying, essentially, this is going to be go I won't use the word, but this is going to be golden. And essentially, he a court, allegedly, either he, allegedly the deal was either keep or people give money toward him or they potentially support him for another office. And he will therefore appoint that person to the United States Senate. I mean, that's something that, you know, just the blatant disregard for, for ethics that, you know, yeah. allegedly um, the governor was a, the, gov the governor had done at that time. But then what does he do? He actually appoints somebody to the United States Senate in Roland, Bur in Roland Burris. And it was very kind of an interesting political play because a lot of the folks on the left, Bobby Rush, for example, has said we need to have another an African-American um, in the United States Senate to replace Barack Obama. So we actually put one in there in that specific position. And it was very um, interesting kind of the politics of it. And Roland Burris actually was nominated and for all and actually, I mean, got, actually got into the United States Senate and for all extensive purposes was a relatively good senator. There are so many factoids, and when you take a look at a factoid, uh, I remember when Nixon uh, appointed uh, or tried to appoint two justices <laughs> that were refused by the Congress, uh, the Bork case. I mean, there's so many examples of the almosts and the almosts and the never-rans and those who just barely got there and didn't get there. I mean, that's what the, the, the American story is all about, not just success but failure. <laughs> well, here, here's another one. For in 1924, actually in 1920, I'm sorry, Warren G. Harding garners the Republican nomination in Ohio from a senator from Ohio, and then the thought was they wanted to balance the ticket. Harding was seen as a conservative, and at the time, the Republicans had a liberal and a conservative bloodline. Let's put Irving Lenroot from West Wisconsin and make him the running mate. So there's a movement, and all of a sudden, somebody says, "What about Calvin Coolidge?" Calvin Coolidge, the governor of Massachusetts, who was known for his role in opposing the Boston police strike, mm. said it was, who had actually been relatively liberal as governor of Massachusetts, but was seen as being conservative simply for his role in um, writing that there was no strike, to, there was no right to, to strike against the public anywhere, anytime. Someone says, why don't we put Calvin Coolidge in there? And all of a sudden, there's a movement at the convention. The establishment loses. Calvin Coolidge becomes the, becomes the nominee. Then not what happens in 1923? Warren G. Harding dies. Calvin Coolidge becomes president. So, I mean, you know, they're always kind of these almost ran or another example, um, you know, you can back to 1880 when James Garfield was nominated. Um, James Garfield's first, the Republican Party's first choice was not Chester A. Arthur. Chester A. Arthur was someone who had opposed civil service reform. James Garfield was a, a supporter of civil service reform, a proponent, if you will. But they wanted Levy Morton. And Levy Morton was someone who was against, who was against civil service. And he went to um, Rusko Conkling, who was one of the political bosses of New York and says, do not take this appointment. Do not take this. I do not want you to serve with James Garfield. James Garfield is essentially your adversary. He's your enemy. So he says, no, this is someone who's always wanted to be a president. So he was seven years old. And so he, Chester A. Arthur says the same thing. Levy Morton says, don't become vice president with this guy. Chester Arthur says, no, I'm going to become vice president. So what happens that first year? James Garfield Dang. dies. Chester Arthur becomes president and Levy Morton never does. And when you're talking about assassinations and you think about both Lincoln and Kennedy and the impact of those, both successors named Johnson. But, uh, I mean, just the most tumultuous times and those two men have foisted upon them in different roles uh, this awesome responsibility. It's, it's fascinating to look at American history like that. How can people get a copy of your 
current book, The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, and all the other books. Please give your own website a plug, too, if you would, Rich. Yeah, and this is the book right here, The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, only $20, and it's 500 pages. And you can certainly get it. Um, just type, just um, get it on Amazon.com. Just type in The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, um, Political Trivia on Steroids uh, by Rich Rubino. And you can certainly also um, find me on Facebook or on Rich and then Rubino. And you can see all the interviews I do or go to uh, Twitter, Rich Rubino, P-O-L. And certainly there are plenty of ways to find me and to find the book. Online. What about backroompolitics.org? Is that also in view? Not, uh, that was a broadcast that I actually did prior to COVID. Oh, I and see. that okay. was it was a radio. It was a radio show. Justin Thomas Russell from Washington uh, was the host and I was uh, one of the panelists. It lasted about a year and a, about a year and a okay, half. OK, but you you're constantly getting the call from CNBC and others to join in and discuss stuff like this, right? Uh, once in a while, once in a while, I've been, uh, I was on C-SPAN uh, about a month ago. I haven't been getting the call recently from certainly CNBC, but if anyone know, if anyone like to have me on, certainly let me know. But I do come on a radio show in St. Louis on KMOX, um, which is, I believe, the first uh, all-talk radio station. I'm on there every week, and I try to analyze what's going on in American politics. I come on certainly locally in Massachusetts, and I'm on oftentimes with uh, Hank Stoltz over on uh, WCRN, uh, the, uh, the morning show. Good man. So and I, and you know, you've been I, on with me on the radio on WBZ more recently. Yes, the uh, yes, the uh, the high watermark of human civilization. <laughs> you are a delight. And, de la and, and not only are you a delight to chat with, but you are just a, a treasure trove of important information, not just trivia, but important historical and civic information. I really love having you on, and we'll do it again sometime, Rich. Really fun. And good luck with the latest book, and I'm sure there are many more in your future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on again, Jordan. Thanks again to Richard Rubino for joining us. So many wonderful books, including the latest called The Great American Political Trivia Challenge, Political Trivia on Steroids. And I can attest to that. It is terrific. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for publishing the podcast, Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions in Boston, where it's all produced. And always a big thank you to all of you who subscribe and download the podcasts and rate and review them. We really appreciate it. Find out more about me, my book on air, my 50-year love affair with radio, and much more at jordanrich.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-I-C-H.com. And until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>